Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Brett Hurt, CEO and co-founder of Data.World. In part one, we talked about his role in the ecosystem as a serial entrepreneur and investor, B corporations and their role in the future of companies, and the clash and collaboration of creatives and capitalists. In this episode, we discuss how Austin's geography affects the ecosystem, lessons from his book, The Entrepreneur's Essentials, Philosophy, Politics, Tech, and of course, what's next, Austin? One of the things that we are seeing, uh, and it's obviously been this way for a while, but continues to be, is that the Austin ecosystem is not just the city of Austin, right? We've got you know movie studios in San Marcos and Bastrop, Georgetown and Leander are just exploding. Tesla's right. down by the airport. How do you see this geographic spread? and growth affecting the ecosystem all the way down to the fact, and you know, I've been lamenting recently about how our interconnectivity with San Antonio is not really what it should be. It's, mm-hmm. it, it, it's close, you can connect in pretty fast, but really this, this more is a mega region than just saying the city of Austin, even though Austin is the kind of the, the, the buzzword that's used in place of that. Well, one of my best friends in Austin is Josh Bear, and we talked a bit about intentionality and how the intentionality I've seen since I was a kid of helping helping others. Josh has created a Texas startup manifesto where he's really talked about the importance of connecting, you know, Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, you know, Houston, et cetera, in this kind of giant triangle region, which is in large part how Southwest Airlines started up, is we're gonna connect this triangle. Um, and that talk about a company with a great soul. And, you know, I, I'm very confident that if Herb Keller started that company today, he would have started as a public benefit corporation. But it takes that type of intentionality. Like Josh sees that, that we can connect these hubs. And, and, it's, and some of that's already just naturally happening. But there's a huge opportunity there in, in a state with such a large GDP and such a diversity of what they stand for. Like, you know, so many Fortune 500 companies are headquartered in Dallas. So much in, you know, energy is in Houston. And, you know, definitely there's a huge part of the world which is um, around the future of energy and a lot of the conflict we're having right now. Like if energy wasn't in the equation, you know, would, would Russia even be able to attack Ukraine and be moderately successful? at it you know it's it's like all that dance around energy so and and everybody knows that that the future is not oil everybody knows that i mean there's no way that that's the future like we have ubiquitous energy coming down from the sun you know the whole reason that elon musk started tesla in the very first place was to create a sexy alternative that people would buy to fight climate change so it just makes so much sense if you think about where the future of the world is going that we would connect these cities and and the fact that they all stand for different things and all have different ecosystems around them is really really exciting so it's just a massive opportunity but i would encourage you to have josh bear on your podcast and also to 
if you're listening to this, to read the Texas Startup Manifesto. I think he's on the 3.0 version on that. It's on his Medium account. And it really distills like what that opportunity is all about. I've had a chance to read through your book. I'm now holding a copy of it in front of me. And uh, the, the Entrepreneur's Essentials, almost like a textbook for entrepreneurs. It's divided up into chapters and almost into uh, a course outline, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I kind of skipped around a little bit. And I found your, your chapter on talent really interesting and really controversial. Okay, good. Now, I've I run, love controversy. So okay. I've, <laughs> run, I've run large divisions of large companies. And when you talked about having to test mm-hmm. potential employees, yep. I got to tell you, my, my head was cocked. I'm like, man, I'm not even sure we could do that anymore. And I remember doing psychological testing and all this other stuff, but that isn't what you're talking about. Right. So tell me. Maybe a, I should describe the test. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we, Brant Barden, who's my co-founder for Bizarre Voice, and I really pioneered a lot of cultural innovation at Bizarre Voice. And one of them was the test. And so maybe I could just describe where the idea came out because it wasn't, it wasn't until the fifth company that I co-founded that, I, that, that we thought of that. And what Brant and I were trying to do is that I told him two stories, you know, in this brainstorm, like, how are we going to hire people? Um, and how are we going to be very intentional about hiring people that really are passionate about the mission of Bizarre Voice? How are we going to know if they're passionate? And I told him this story, you know, growing up in Austin, I really thought that I was passionate about um, guitar and I love to listen. I love music. You know, this the city that Steve Ray Vaughan grew up in and became one of the greatest guitar players of all time, you know, tragically passed away way too young, but uh, just incredible, incredible. He was on a lot of the early Austin City Limits tapings. And so I thought that I wanted to play guitar and my mom got me a guitar and I tried to learn how to play and I just hated it. And I realized that's not me. Like I can appreciate it, but that's not me. And a lot of times in business, you need to pick up the metaphorical guitar and decide if that's you. And there's a lot of romance in business. And as people see startups succeed during you know, the dot-com boom, there are a lot of people that went into the startups that really weren't passionate about it at the end of the day. They weren't, they weren't passionate about like what it actually meant to create something from scratch and how hard that would be. They just thought, hey, this is a great way to become a millionaire um, and get some of this dot-com money. You know, we've seen that to extent with crypto as well. And so they basically had that mentality. And so you'd get a lot of people that really weren't meant to be there. And when the dot-com bust happened, I saw a lot of those people wash out and go back to the big corporates. So when Brant and I decided to, to do this, this test, and I'll describe the test in a second, it was super controversial around Austin because I would go speak, I'm a, you know, pretty well-known CEO here. And I would go speak about how we do this and CEOs would throw up all over it. And they would, they would literally raise their hand. They'd be like, you're insane. Like if I did that, you know, probably 90% of the people I'm interviewing would fall out of the pipeline. And this is a real competitive, it's always been a competitive hiring market here. And I said, well, I now have the stats on it. I didn't have the stats on it at the beginning. And I can tell you that over 90% of the people that are given the test, take the test 
and that it bonds them to the company in a very unique way and actually makes us stand out versus their competitive alternatives and makes them more likely to accept if we've decided they did really well on it. So what is the test? The test is that, again, that metaphorical picking up the guitar. We've gone through a process recently at Data.World where we're hiring a VP of finance. The test for a VP of finance or a VP period at a company like ours is you're going to be responsible for leading. And so we look at how do we know how they're going to lead and what are, we, what are they going to prioritize? They've come in with a lot of experience. So we came up with the kind of presidential 100-day plan. What are you going to accomplish in your first 100 days? And you learn a tremendous amount when you tell someone, hey, you're a finalist and there's this one more thing we need you to do. We need you to come in and present to us your 100-day plan. We'll give you about 45 minutes to present and we'll have 15 minutes of Q&A. And you don't give them anything else than that. You don't want to script it for them. And then you learn like how well do they prepare for something that ambiguous? Because look, leadership is very ambiguous. Um, who do they contact, if anybody? Or do they just do it in a vacuum? Do they say like, hey, is it okay if I talk with XYZ people in the company? Of course it is. Like we didn't give you any boundaries. You can, do, you can do whatever you want. But the people that don't make the assumption they can do whatever they want, you learn a lot about that person's gonna operate in, on their own independent island or they're not gonna be as resourceful. And then when they're presenting, you actually learn a tremendous amount because you are now simulating what it's gonna be like to work with that person. And they are simulating what it's gonna be like to work with you. And you learn a tremendous amount on whether or not they're truly passionate about it. And hey, is this someone that you know we really wanna work with? And so, so the test is basically to put them in the role of the job, kind of like a day in the life of. And it takes a lot of time to prepare for. I mean. That's, that's the part that's maybe the most controversial is someone preparing a 100-day plan. That may take 20 hours, okay? That's, that's a lot of time. But what's the worst situation? Someone coming in and finding out that they don't like playing that guitar and just dropping it or faking it, you know, for a long time. There's a lot of people that go through faking in life and really don't love what they're doing. You know, Guy Kawasaki, who was one of my original startup mentors, he always says he was a, a failed lawyer that then became the chief evangelist for Apple. He like spent his whole life going through that track and then, and then realizing I hate this track and he's one of the greatest marketers in the world. He was one of the greatest original kind of startup marketers in the world. And so anyways, that's what the test is all about. It's all about really making sure that you're right for them and they're right for you and that the mission is something that they really bond with. And Look, when you're animated, I've, I've had people go through the test that are salespeople. The sales test is different. It's come in and present to us like we're a prospect. Tell us which prospect to role play. And I've had people come in that were the number one performer in their company. Like they're very proud of that. And then they, in a competitive scenario where you're comparing them versus another salesperson, it's very clear that they, that they spent almost no time preparing and then it's very clear that this person that was much hungrier spent a lot of time preparing. And it shows because it's a, you're simulating being a prospect and you're like, I would buy from that person. So I don't care if this person was number one. 
what if they were number one at their company because they were paired with a great sales engineer and the sales engineer was doing 90% of the work to get the sale done and they were just getting all the credit. The more technical the sale is, the more the sales engineer is needed. And so there's this, there's, there's a lot of mystery about like, is this person that performed, was the reason they performed because of them or because of the people that surrounded them, et cetera. And what you want at, at a startup, and that's what the Entrepreneur's Essentials is all about, is how to start and grow companies and then ultimately pay back and help others, is you want the people that are very self-driven, that are very motivated by your mission. You know, we will all run through walls to get it done. It is not going to be easy. It is so much easier to go work at a big company like a Meta or a Google and just ride the cash flows of all the people that did the heavy lifting before you came in and just be pushing paper, in, in this case, pushing buttons on a computer and have no fear of failure. And everybody's going to salute you when you go home for Thanksgiving and say like, you must be a genius. You work at Google and they're not going to salute you when you say that you're working at a startup that they've never heard of. They're going to think, oh my gosh, you're like putting your life in jeopardy. You may fail. Like this whole thing, you know, may taint your career, et cetera. So it takes a lot to get something going from scratch. You know, Elon Musk, who we, you know, one of the people we celebrate here, you know, Tesla almost went out of business. He put all of his savings into it. And that was the thing that guilted the rest of the VC community to go in and say, this guy's putting everything he's got on the line to make this successful. And so they, they came in, they were like, that's what it takes. So it's, um, it's very hard to start anything, but it's the most glorious feeling in the world, in career, when you start something from scratch with a team that you love and a mission you love and turn it into something that actually changes the world for the better. There's no better feeling. And all great American companies started that way, whether it's Walmart and Sam Walton. You know, I studied him a lot when I went to the Warden School and his book Made in America, or whether it's Elon Musk or whether it's Michael Dell, you know, toiling away in his dorm room at UT um, with his parents saying, Michael, we really want you to finish college. Like we really want you to become a doctor or a lawyer and him saying, please, please, I really want to do this. And then his parents saying, look, if you can, if you can make $300,000 this summer, just pulling the number out of the air, we will leave you alone. And that summer he made like over half a million. And they're like, all right, we're leaving you alone. You can drop out of UT. You can, you can do whatever you want with this, with this Dell computer. It wasn't even called Dell back then, but but with this computer company you want to start. It was great because um, I think your calling it simulation is so much better than the test, but just my opinion. Yeah, um, it's true. The test makes it, it definitely could spike more adrenaline. Oh yeah. Um, but look, a lot of life is a test. I mean, when, when, I, when I got into Warden, I really wanted to go there for my MBA. I went to UT for undergrad. I really wanted to go to Warden for my MBA. I felt like that was my personality and that was my people. And it really turned out to be the case. And I had to work so hard to get in there. I had to study so hard for the GMAT. I had to write my essays over and over again for three months. Um, my wife, you know, been married 26 years. Deborah was like, this isn't good enough. You're not really answering the question. I would show them to strangers on planes and say, Someone, a stranger is going to read this. What do you think about it? Am I describing it well? Because that's how much I wanted to get in. 
And then the people that you're surrounded by have all been through that same hell to get in. And I want people to go through some hell to get a job at data.world or Bizarre Voice before. I want, I want to know that they really care to be there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Your, your section on helping, I absolutely agreed with you on a lot of the key points. I mean, clearly the growth of the economy is going to be based on intangibles going forward. Mm-hmm. VCs coming out of banking, I can absolutely attest to this. VCs have turned risk management on its head compared to a bank. And Europe's regulatory model is a disaster compared to the United States. What does America have to do to continue that growth in the startup and the venture and the innovation economy? Yeah, so there's a, there's, there's a really good analogy to your episode where you interviewed um, Dr. John Butler on how Austin started and George Kuzmetsky. We dramatically underinvest in this country in innovation, especially compared to China. And that's a huge mistake. So it's, it's a massive increase in funding things like basic science. Like that's where we, I, w- I would love us to take like 20% of the military budget and allocate it to that. No kidding. I mean, cause the whole goal of humanity and being, being Jewish, you know, the whole goal of Judaism is tikkun olam, is to create a better world. And the whole goal of humanity is based on innovation. Like everything that we've done throughout human history to innovate, whether it's the creation of the printing press or it was the, um, the, the creation of, you know, recently the electric car or whatever. I mean, you know, how solar energy is going to change the world. I gave a talk at our synagogue, Dun Shavuot, where I talked about, it was a controversial talk where I talked about, look, if we are, if we are a reflection of God, then the goal of humanity is to become godlike. And the people that lived 200 years ago would look at us as godlike today. And 200 years from now, if we were able to go into a time machine, we'd look at those people as godlike. They would probably be creating things out of atoms, you know, from what appeared to be thin air to us. I mean, that's for sure coming, right? Nanotechnology and all types of biotech and everything else. And so that is the goal of, of humanity is to constantly innovate, constantly try to create a better world. The U.S. should be the leader in that. And it makes me nervous that, that we are falling behind on that. But I do think that people are getting more and more of the memo there. Like one thing that is very united on the front of Republicans and Democrats, you know, we can talk about division, but the, but the reality is there's a lot of unitedness when it comes to things like the threat of China and the fact that do we really want the world to evolve in a way where an authoritarian regime is going to be the ruler of the world? You know, they're, they're right now number two in the world on GDP and everybody thinks they're going to be number one and could literally be the leader of the entire world. Do we want that for the world? Or do we want a world where the whole goal of humanity is to become free and express freedom and have the ability to choose and not have the, not have this fear of being constantly, uh, you know, potentially imprisoned and everything else because you've spoken out against the dear leader. You know, we've seen that in human history that doesn't work out so well. Um, so I think, I think the U S needs to 
get massively more involved when it comes to basic science and when it comes when it comes to funding innovation that's so obviously the future you know whether it's solar energy whether it's things like the future of biotech you know the future of medicine these are things which have literally led i mean we created the internet you know one of the things that I always kind of smile at whenever i'm giving someone my number that's that's from overseas is i'm always like plus one well where'd the plus one come from we're the plus one in the entire world because we invented the freaking telephone systems right i mean that was like the original innovation we invented the internet here those and those things came um originally out of things like basic science that's the large scale let's take it down to austin what do you think are the biggest challenges that austin faces right now yeah so i think i think so many things are going in the right direction for Austin right now, like one thing that really held us back, if you go back when I moved, when I moved back here, you know, 19 years ago, is there was one major VC, it was Austin Ventures. Now we have a diversity of lots of VCs. The problem with that back then is that if Austin Ventures passed on your business and you went to Silicon Valley to see if you could get funding, the first question you would ever get is, why is Austin Ventures not an investor in you? And have you pitched them? Of course, you have to be honest. You say yes, and they passed. Well, now all the decks stacked against you because they're like, well, they know that system ecosystem and we don't. We're based here in California. So the fact that so many prominent VCs have moved here, whether it's Jim Breyer or Joe Lonsdale, a number of others, you know, Sapphire Ventures has their headquarters here. I mean, it's just amazing. You know, you you guys had Garhong on your podcast. I think he's an absolutely amazing person. I've got intersectionality with him through the Aspen Institute. He's a, he's a fellow there too. So you you have you have so many things going. We talked about the diversity of the the ecosystem. The only thing that I'm fearful for right now in Austin is how the government is innovating in a negative way on the social side. It it's it's very anti-Texan in my opinion. Like Texas is Texas is the definition of a melting pot. Texas is like very diverse. It's actually very diverse politically too. And it's kind of a centrist state at the end of the day. And politically, I'm an independent. So one of the things that, that I did recently is Josh Bear and I got a group of CEOs together, a lot of the most prominent startup CEOs in town. And we wrote a letter saying, don't mess with Texas innovation. And one of the things I give Abbott and Rick Perry a lot of credit for is that they're responsible for recruiting a lot of businesses to move here, which I think are great, giving them incentives and everything else. There are now more Fortune 500 companies in Texas than any other state in the U.S. I think all that's great. The, but if we start to innovate in a way where socially we oppress people of color, we oppress women, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the natural evolution of the state that we want. And so if, if anybody's interested in tuning in to that letter and signing on with it, you can read it at notinnovation.austinstartups.com or just go to Josh Bear's Medium account. We put it on his Medium account because he's got a lot of followers on there. And, and just see if that resonates with you. But that, that, is my, that is my biggest fear is that that type of negative social innovation will lead people to reconsider, like, do they want to locate their business here? Um, are they going to have a mutiny with their employees if they choose Texas? I got a crushing 
text last night from a very good friend, one of the greatest innovators in the US who said, I don't wanna come to Texas right now. I don't wanna even spend a cent there because of the way it's innovating in this area. And I was trying to talk him off of a cliff and saying, look, you know, there's a lot of people like me that are, that are fighting to make sure that Texas doesn't go in a direction which is so polarizing that it, that it literally disenfranchises people and they don't wanna move here. That's, that's one thing that I worry about. Brett Hurt, the essential entrepreneur, founder of Data.World. We always ask the same question to close the podcast. What's next, Austin? I think Austin is uh, just beginning. I really think that uh, it's going to lead the world in so many ways from energy to food to manufacturing to software as a service type of businesses to data it's really just beginning. It's becoming more and more diverse in terms of the ecosystem of capitalism and frankly, even the ecosystem on the creative side. Like there are many more creative endeavors being launched here all the time. You just have to open your eyes and look for them. And so I really think that Austin has an incredible future ahead. I mean, one of the things in terms of that you're gonna be hearing a lot about um, in terms of just lifting others up and something I'm very involved in now is uh, Terry Mitchell is starting something called the Black Fund, which is really going to lift up a lot of the, the black entrepreneurs in Austin, a lot of the black nonprofit leaders in Austin. And that kind of stuff happens here because of intentionality. Like she decided to start that as a black woman and she's got a lot of um, great technologists, great capitalists surrounding her saying, yeah, it's time. It's time for Austin to do this, past time for Austin to do this. Um, so that kind of innovation is happening all the time and is a really beautiful aspect of, of Austin. But I'm very bullish. I think the next 10 years are going to be the best 10 years that Austin has ever seen. I, I really believe that the momentum is building on itself and you could have never asked me to predict that the pandemic would have been the tipping point. I just, I, I understand it, but I would not have predicted it. I mean, of course, if we predicted it, you know, in terms of old Austinites, we would have all been buying up tons of real estate because um, that would have been, that would have been the best bet, you know, when the market was just completely crashing and everything else. And we all thought, you know, everybody's watching the movie contagion and thinking, Oh my gosh, is this, is this going to kill all of us? And, you know, body bags are lined up in Italy and Wuhan's locked down. And we've never guessed that's the moment that would be Austin's moment out of all the moments. It's always been on an upward trend, but that that's when it would hockey stick. But I think what that has led to is great people like you two moving here and your families. It's led to amazing people like Jim Breyer and Joe Lonsdale moving here and we're just beginning. Like it's, it's, I mean, to actually even see a new university like that's gonna be created here. I mean, that's so cool. Like there's just so many things that are happening here, which are gonna have a very long tail of impact. Um, Elon Musk just starting here. I mean, you know, they're, they're talking about actually creating a whole different city right outside of Austin that's based purely on the future and purely on technology. And, and you know, I'm sure the boring company is gonna be doing, you know, all types of projects here. So it's going to, this is, this is the city of the future. And even the skyline looks like that. I was talking with, uh, with someone who's very internationally traveled, you know, goes to Singapore and all over the place. And, and he was making the point, he was like, you, you realize that the city 
skyline of Austin now actually looks more high-tech than almost any city I travel to in the world. I was like, you're so right, you know? And, and, and those, those buildings, that creative class and the capitalist class kind of like that tension has led to, you know, very energy efficient buildings, like very innovative design, you know, a lot of intentionality in building them. And all that stuff just feeds on itself because people come here and they're like, I want to be like that too and pay back and be a part of the Austin ethos. Brett, thank you so much for inviting us into your home and for being on the Austin Next Podcast. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher, leave us a review, and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.